1: Welcome to the 172nd episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Minoti Rajput. Minoti is the founder and president of Secure Planning Strategies, a hybrid advisory firm based near Detroit, Michigan, that oversees nearly 300 million of assets in her management for 350 client households. What's unique about Minoti, though, is that she's built her advisory firm by crafting a deep specialization in working with families with special needs children and creating a truly multi-generational clientele in serving both the parents of those children and supporting the special needs trust for those children long after their parents may pass away. In this episode, we talk in depth about what it really means to work with a niche of special needs families, the way Minotti structures her fees with a combination of an upfront complexity-based planning fee that may be the entirety of the relationship for some clients, the ongoing AUM fee she charges to work with more affluent families who are for ongoing special needs clients, the limitations of doing niche-based financial planning and traditional planning software and the need to use Word and Excel to create more custom plans, and how Minoti has been able to systematize and create repeatable expertise to keep even her custom-written financial plans very efficient to create and deliver. We also talk about how Minotti built her niche in the special needs community itself, how she gathered the requisite expertise it takes to understand the myriad of both federal, state, and local programs available to support special needs families, the unique marketing opportunity she's been able to create working with school systems where as many as 10% of students have some kind of special education needs, where Minotti draws the line between giving advice to special needs families but not serving as their special needs attorney, and how Minoti handles the real-world compliance challenges in providing this kind of specialized advice while being supervised by a broker-dealer compliance department. And be certain to listen to the end, where Minoti shares why, even though she's gone deep into the specialization of serving special needs families successfully, she still keeps a client base where almost 50% of her clients are generalist and not niche clients. The most misunderstood aspects of what it takes to be profitable and grow scalably when serving a niche clientele like special needs families, and the resources she recommends, including books to read, organizations to join, and designations to pursue for other advisors who want to pursue such a rewarding and fulfilling niche as well. And so, with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Minoti Rajput. Welcome, Minoti Rajput, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast.
2: Thank you, Michael. I'm honored to be here. I'm very pleased to be here.
1: I'm really excited about this episode and this discussion. You, know, We talk a lot on the podcast around the value of having niches and specializations as a, as a way to differentiate an increasingly competitive advisor landscape where everyone says they do Comprehensive financial planning, customize the individual needs of their clients with these credentials and years of experience and all the all the different things that we market. But for a subset of people, you sort of forming into niches or specializations is not just literally like I have a business strategy where I'm going to specialize in these clients so that I can distinguish myself from the crowd. We do it for much more personal reasons and and much more of a personal mission. And I know that you have been down this journey with a practice that specializes specifically into working with special needs children, or I guess even special needs families and all of the challenges that happen for the whole family. And, and so I'm I'm excited to say to talk about what to me is just a really powerful niche, not just for the business opportunity that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about as we go of differentiating yourself in a crowded advisor landscape, but to me, this is an area that gets into just the, the purest aspect of why we are advisors and why we try to help people and the incredible helping impact that you can have when you specialize into families that have some very unique and challenging and complex needs. So tell us a little bit about the, the business as it exists today. Like, Tell us about your advisory firm and just what you do in practice.
2: My company is Secure Planning Strategies that I started 10 years after I started in the business. So in 1990, Secure Planning Strategies was created. And today we are three partners. We have two young advisory associates and in total, including our supporting staff, we are 10 people in the office. We are always a generalist first. I always say that. You cannot be a good specialist unless and until you have a very strong foundation of being a traditional or a generalist advisor. So we balance our special needs practice along with our general practice very well and yet very carefully. So over the years, both sides of the business have grown. And today I'm in the mode of my succession planning with one of my advisors who has been with me for 20 years. And then also that's Mehul Mystery, who is also my nephew, but also Eleanor Ho, who her practice and my practice, we merged about almost nine years ago as part of the bigger picture because we were reaching a level where two advisors were just not going to be enough to manage the capacity in the office And we take pride in being what we call a generational practice because I'm in my 60s. My one partner is in her 50s, another one in 40s, a paraplanner in 30s, and our advisor associates are in their 20s. So we always like to tell our clients that, you know, when you're 85, I may be gone, but you don't have to change the firm. Everything is going to be here. Our expertise is here to help you but so will our advisors and you will have peace of mind that you will be taken care of in our practice. So that's what the structure is. And there's a lot more detail underneath that goes on on a regular basis to make this practice successful.
1: Well, I, I love that framing around just being able to emphasize how the how the practice will move beyond the advisor. I mean, I, I think that's irrelevant almost across the board for any of us as advisors. You know, if you're if you're an advisor, I think particularly if you're if you're an advisor in your 50s and 60s and saying, well, I work with retirees, at some point some of your retired clients or some of your retired prospects are sitting across for you saying, like, I'm going to be retired longer than you're going to be working until you retire. And I'm not quite sure what's going to happen when you retire, but I don't really want to have to find another advisor in my 70s or 80s because we worked together for 10 or 15 years and then you left. And so that lingering concern of, you know, what happens if, if you're going to tell me you're here for my retirement? What happens when when you retire becomes an issue? But when you've got to focus around special needs families and and you know, literally working multi-generationally because you may be helping parents and they need to be there for children for a long time to come thereafter. I would think it just it takes on a whole other level of. If you want to work in this space, you have to demonstrate your ability to continue the firm's services beyond the, the lifetime of the parents. That's, that's like literally kind of the point of why they need the help with the planning.
2: Well, you're right. It's also important for me to demonstrate to my clients that we are truly planners. If you have not done your own planning, how are you able to advise others why this generational planning is important? we have to take care of ourselves first in order to be able to take care of our clients. That's
1: a good point. And like, do you actually frame it that way with clients? Do you point that out?
2: Yes, we do. Because we are managing assets for our clients in addition to doing their planning, which is where our net worth comes from, which is where our revenue comes from. All of that happens. And if you have not planned for our future, we will lose a lot of our clients if you're not connected with the next generation. And I may not know how to speak the next generation language. I may not be as technically savvy. I may not know what the millennials thoughts are versus the generation X, Y, Z. But that's why I have the others in my office who can assist me while I'm there. And they don't have the maturity and experience that I bring to the table. And so it's all part of the household. We are all in a team. So many of my clients will say, but Minoti, when you're gone, uh, we may not feel comfortable just with working with others. So it's very important for me to naturally walk them through from one side of the fence to the other and gradually have them build confidence or feel confident with the other advisors as well.
1: And so how is that done in practice? That Joint meetings, is that like you do everything in teams? How are you actually trying to promote that kind of cross-connection to younger advisors in the firm?
2: So every single meeting has at least two advisors. And now that we have advisor associates, even though it may seem like a crowd, but one of the advisor associate is also present. They are listening, they are taking notes, and then we are letting them do the planning and they are watching us, how we are presenting it to them. So this is a process, but we, for the last three years, every single case is attended by at least two advisors.
1: And so help us understand overall size and scope of the firm. I, I don't know if you measure by number of clients or assets or management or revenue, but, but how large is the firm overall?
2: So currently we manage, uh, as far as assets under management are concerned, we have somewhere around 370 million assets under management. Now, this amount also includes Eleanor, uh, who merged her practice with us ours about nine years ago. She has about 60, 70 million of her own that she brought in. And then now she's merging with ours. But even before she came in, if I just take a look at What our practice was before, uh, not counting hers, we still have over 300 million assets under management. That belongs to about 350 clients. And of those clients, 40% are that of special needs families.
1: Okay. So 40% of the 350 or so client households are special needs families.
2: Correct. And then In addition to those 350, we also have another 100 or so clients. We have done their basic planning. We have helped them with their legal planning, with special needs planning. They may have purchased a life insurance to fund the special needs trust, or we may have just done a base plan for a fee, but they haven't had any triggering moment in their life or an event in their life that has allowed us to take over their assets, such as a retirement, such as receiving inheritance, such as the parents dying and the special needs trust is funded. But we keep a very close tab of those people and we are in communication with them on a regular basis, especially whenever we feel there's a tax law change or any changes that are taking place that impacts their special needs planning. It could be the government benefit cuts or not having, having a housing crisis, things like that. So we are in touch with them so that they know that we really mean service to them and we have all intentions of helping them and also to prove that we are probably on the only name in town that does comprehensive special needs planning.
1: So talk to us a little bit about the what this model looks like in practice. Like, are you still predominantly doing assets under management? Are you charging separate fees for planning as well? Do you have other fees for special needs planning? Are are you like also implementing the insurance and the trust and compensated for that? Like, What does this look like from a business model perspective?
2: So we are a hybrid practitioner uh, financial planning firm, which means We have a broker-dealer relationship because of some of the products that we had used to implement our plans in the past, such as annuities and things like that. As far as investment management is concerned, we are strictly fees. We always do a basic comprehensive plan first, irrespective of whether it's a family with a special needs child or a traditional family. And in or. In, in terms of traditional planning we still have certain specialties like pre retirees or retirees with certain net worth or assets available to manage or small business owners or um, women in transition two out of three advisors here are women and so we feel f- feel very strongly about educating women and making sure that they are they feel confident about money matters so wherever we have these clients approach us for planning, whether it is from a workshop or a referral lead or observation from just the community and so on. They get a questionnaire first. They send it to us completed. We go over that in the consultation and we assess what's involved in that and we offer to do a plan for them and we code a fee for them to do that plan. And they give us all of the data their existing legal documents, business plan, financial assets, and tax returns, and all of that, and if it's a special needs child, we go into far more details about the family situation, about the disability of the child, the ability and inability of the child, and and we, we can talk separately about just the special needs aspect of planning, but in general, we get all this data, and then we create a plan. So over the years, I have recognized that I can use a lot of different uh, planning software tools and so on. But at the end of the day, what really works is plain layperson's terms planning that's presented to them. So our plan really incorporates their family description, their objectives, and their objectives when they come in, they say, okay, I need to do special needs planning for my child but they don't recognize that all aspects of their family and financial life are connected with each other. So we lay out the objectives. What should be the objective in the risk management, in the cash flow, in the investment analysis, retirement projection, estate planning with focus on special needs planning? And then we focus on their cash flow, what their current living expenses are, income is, And what is the discretionary income? It's very important to us to know what the discretionary income, because if we make certain recommendations on funding strategy for a special needs trust, we have to know what their ability to do so. Or if they're not, if they're not funding their retirement plan adequately, we have to know what their ability to do so, because if in their retirement they are not taken care of financially. How are they going to extend the financial security to the next generation? So all of this analysis is done and then we present it to them. We make the recommendations and we give them the options. Do you get it? How can we help you? We give them a few days to think about all these things, have them send us in detail any questions that we can answer for them, they always have the questions of how are the assets managed? What is your fee structure? How often will you see us? How often do we have to update our legal documents? Will you hold our hand on an ongoing basis? We address all of those issues and then they will say, yes, we want to move forward. So the financial planning aspect has to be done first before we sit down with the attorney and say, now we are ready because they have identified what, how they want to distribute their assets or the estate to the heirs, and what is going to be going into the special needs trust, and are they going to identify a specific asset that's going to be designated for the special needs trust, who are going to be identified, the successor trustees, advocates, future residential options, should their house be deeded to the special needs trust. All of those things are discussed before we sit down with the attorney and tell them to do the documents. Once the documents are done, we always get copies of the documents sent us electronically. And then we make sure that all of their financial assets are connected with their legal documents. And then we also let them have a meeting wherever it's applicable with their adult children to let them know what their role is going to be in the big picture and then we meet with them on a regular basis. If we take over the assets, we have to meet them in the first couple of years, maybe once every six months, but after they have gotten familiar with the whole pattern, maybe once a year, but have number of conversations per year or invite them to other workshops that we do. We always do educational workshops for our existing clients. So they are invited to that to keep them up to date on what's happening in the economic world, as well as the special needs world. That is our process.
1: Interesting. And so help me break down a little bit more sort of what you do initially and what you you do in charge for initially versus ongoing. So uh, everything from kind of initial survey and consultation until you present the plan, it sounds like is stage one, and there's a planning fee for that. And then if they decide to work with you on an ongoing basis, that moves into an assets under management world if there are assets available to manage. And if not, they just stay separately tied to your firm through emails, communications, workshops, and then may become an AUM client in the future.
2: The fees are charged based upon the complexity of the plan. That is not our primary revenue source necessarily. But we don't want a client to think that they can pick our brains, spend our time, and walk away say, I don't want to do anything. So we charge a minimum of $2,000 for an average plan. Their investment analysis is done through taking their statements, running through Riskalyzer, Morningstar reports, and we identify to them what the challenge we see, whether they are just a product-based um, asset management, just buying a whole bunch of mutual funds or target-dated funds. We point out to them what their fees are. And because they are not retiring for just two people, how the long term growth has to be primarily a focus because they cannot just think about, okay, I have enough and that's going to last me because they're planning for three people's retirement or sometimes more than three people their objective has to be redefined and their portfolios have to have risk management tools to overcome the volatility. So the analysis part is detailed and we spend time for them. Have we charged less than $2,000? Yes. If, put, if their situation is far simpler, then we have charged occasionally also maybe $1,500, $1,200. But whenever their situation has been very complex, like they have a business and their mentally ill son is involved, but the mentally ill son is also receiving government benefits. So the parents, even though their son is part of the business, they cannot leave assets to this person. So how do you do all of that? What kind of tax planning has to be done for the business, succession planning and so on? And we have also charged $10,000 fees for that. It's the general planning, and then it's still focusing around the special needs planning that is done that way
1: and so, as you're doing this sort of complexity oriented fee how how do you come to a number? is this kind of a gut feeling from you you get you you see the information, the survey, spot some concern areas, and just having done this for a long time, have a good feel for how complex it's going to be and what the cost is going to be, or do you have a like a specific structure, you know, if you're a business owner at $1,000, if if you know you have this situation at $500 and and kind of complexity calculator it up. How does how do you get to a a number when you've got a range of, you know, 1200
2: to $10,000? It's a combination. The estimate comes from the gut and I've been in business 40 years and I've handled a lot of different complexities and simple plans. So I'm able to assess how much time it's going to take? How much calculation it's going to take? Will I need to pick up the phone and call one of the attorneys who is also a tax attorney, but also the special needs planning to pick her brain? You know, we have reciprocity relationships, so I get calls from attorneys; I call them. But it's the time that we are spending and bringing other people's advice in the document that we that we present to them. All of that are taken into consideration and then quoting a fee to them. And sometimes I may tell them, look, I need to sit down and assess what the situation. I'm not able to tell you exactly what I'm going to charge, but I will give you the option whether you should work with me. But this is what we'll bring to the table for this kind of
1: fee. And so you do this regardless of whether they're a special needs client or or on the generalist side of the practice. Fees may be a little bit different because the complexity may be different, but the, the structure you're doing for both sides. And so if they decide to move forward after the initial planning process, then what does that look like? Do you have versions with ongoing fees for people that have ongoing special needs questions but don't necessarily have assets? Or is it all an assets under management structure once they go through the initial planning process?
2: We have in that hundred clients, we have number of clients who may have paid us a fee initially, and then they are on our communication list. Occasionally they'll call, but just a phone call, we are not going to send them a bill. But if they come because there has been a drastic change in their circumstances, there's been a death or inheritance or retirement, and now we are putting our heads together and redoing their plan, but they're also intending to bring the assets. So we'll give them a concession on the fee. It's very important for us to convey to them that, look, if we give you a planning document, we recognize that you reserve the right to walk away from here and do nothing with us. So we want them to appreciate and respect the value of our time, our experience, and our knowledge. So for that, we charge a very nominal fee. But it's also telling them that we have the capability of doing all, and we work to prove that every single time. And so when they come over, then we charge a fee for the assets that we are going to manage for them. If right in the beginning or even later on, if they have decided that, you know, I'm not very confident what's going to be left in my estate by the time I pass away, So even if I want to leave 100% of our estate to my special needs child's trust, 100% of zero is still zero. So I wasn't very keen on buying a life insurance, but as things are progressing or as we are getting older, I'm recognizing the value of it. We are ready to buy the life insurance now. We will get compensated for that implementation of that insurance in the trust, whether they did in the beginning or even later.
1: And so... Because of this varying complexity, even on an ongoing basis, do you end up with different AUM fees for special needs clients versus other clients, or is it a uniform fee schedule across the board?
2: No, our fees are uniform across. We, For a regular traditional clients, uh, non-special needs clients, we have a requirement of a million, minimum of a million dollars for asset under management. We will uh, have a concession uh, for the special needs family, but it's still minimum of five or $600,000. The reason is the strategies that we use, we can't do the right thing for small amounts of money. We need certain minimum to do the right thing. So that fee is uniform. For the first $2 million, our fee is 1%. But we use strictly third-party managed portfolios and majority of our business is through investment platform basically so whatever is the additional management uh, managers fee or custodial fees is in addition to that but b- we bring in value in terms of how we select the managers and what our diversification is and also what our diversification and management style is so we feel that over the years you know having been through 2001 and two, two 2008, and, and first of all, 1987, all of those and a whole bunch of clients retiring at the same time, facing the vulnerability of the market, we have stepped back and come up with conclusion as to, in our minds, what works and what doesn't work and what we are comfortable with. So we are very happy with what we do in terms of assets under management and how we present it to our clients and what works for them as well as for us.
1: So I'm I'm struck just by the, the discussion around, you know, as, as there's more and more focus in our advisor world around fees, and, and we start adding more layers, you know, uh, platforms have their uh, fees, we may start seeing custody fees begin to emerge, third-party managers have their own fees. So how how do you talk through with clients this, I guess, like this layering effect, like, this is our 1%, oh, but that doesn't even cover the outside managers, then you have to pay them. And if there's a platform fee, you have to pay them. And so numbers start adding up from there. Uh, I mean, do you, is that a challenge? Do you get pushback? Do you have concerns around just what those fees add up to when all the layers go in there?
2: Well, it depends. It's our obligation to explain to them everything. It has to be full disclosure. And remember, I live in Detroit. It's full of engineers who are very analytical. Okay, They do ask those kind of questions and we explain it to them that, you know, when you go to a mutual fund managed portfolio, if the advisor is charging 1% or 90 basis points or whatever it is, the average fee, including the mutual fund management fee, could be 1.2, 1.3. And so if you have to pay 20 basis points, we are educating them to take a look at what's the value, because whether you have a special needs child, by just having this one bill to pay, which comes off from your assets under management, you're also getting this additional services of keeping you updated and holding your hand for all aspects of your life journey. So they get that. They get that very well once they come aboard. And to be honest with you, we are not bending backwards to beg their business. We say, listen, this is how it works. We get compensated, but we take care of you. And it's not always going to be about rates of return. Our goal is that you may not reach the very high top returns, but we also don't want you to fall very hard. We just want to make sure that the expectations are realistic, but we want to make sure that this portfolio is going to last a very long time.
1: And so, when you do the planning work itself, what do you use for the uh, planning software? Like, are you still in traditional financial planning software? Or are you in spreadsheets you made yourself? Like, how does special needs planning get done? Because I don't know too many planning software packages that have like a a special needs planning module. Most aren't even that good at estate planning in general.
2: Even if I had a software to demonstrate the special needs planning, you know, I have come away from making a presentation of a computer-generated planning. I take the software, I use the software to do my projections for my calculations, whether it's e-money, risk all of that, but we take the summary, and majority of the times, our planning is on Word document. The description of the family, every member's family is described, what their date of birth is, who they are married to, and how many children they have, what is their profession. And believe me, when we are asking details of every family member, we discover so much that's going to be Making an impact on their estate planning. When we do the right objectives, you know, we have templates that we have created over the years, but it still is word document. You know, the risk management—if the the primary wage earner passes away, what is the source of income for the surviving spouse? We have cash flow statements, and we ask them to complete it, and it's translated into our planning document. You know, we say your income is one hundred fifty thousand dollars. You're paying taxes, and you're contributing in the 401k plan, so you should be left with about $100,000. When you're listing your expenses, you're only saying you can live at $60,000. Where is the rest of the 40? 90% of the people don't know where their money is going. So I have my favorite quote is, financial planning is telling your money where to go instead of asking where it went. We make them redo their cash flow at least two, three times until they get it right. Right because I want to use the discretionary income to do future planning. So we do future retirement projections. We do the investment analysis. The morning report is very important. Riskalizer is very important. E-money to do the future, what's going to be left by the time you pass away. And when the tax loss changes, we have to implement that to make sure what the tax impl- implication is. So it's a combination of tools that we use to make the presentation that's easy for them to understand sometimes the husband just gets it because he's more savvy but we want to design the plan for the partner who we recognize may not be that financially savvy
1: interesting and and so it sounds like functionally the like the planning software like e-money's e- doing the number crunching stuff but for you the the plan is the Word document that you write up and the e-money projections just kind of get slapped on the back of, right. like, you know, if you're an engineer and you want to figure out where that number came from, see page 72 of the e-money printout.
2: And almost all engineers ask that.
1: Mm-hmm. But but you're building primarily custom Word documents.
2: Yes, you're right. Every planning is customized.
1: And, and so just out of curiosity, how do you actually bring that together like have you made templated word documents internally is there a certain standard structure about how you do it because that's sounds very time consuming of literally manually creating word documents every time you go through a plan
2: it could be my younger associates here occasionally do cut and paste but special needs planning is not standard planning it is customized planning the disability is different. So the description of their child from Asperger syndrome to a angiolexia to Turner syndrome and their neurological deficiencies or the ability, inability is different. I cannot have a template for that. Our planning is time consuming, but it's worth every minute of the time that we spend because I don't want to give them a template document. When they see the description and they're nodding because they didn't recognize that when they were describing all those things, we are making notes. And every sentence that they have said has an implication. This is when I'm meeting with you when your child is 17 years old. I'm meeting with you again when he's 26, about to leave high school here. And now, do we see any progress? Has he gotten a job? I need to be able to go back and see what the description was of the child and his ability or inability to do certain things. But also the relationship. In this last few years, the older sibling was in the university, was calling on a regular basis to check how the brother or sister was doing, now has moved on with his job to California. His wife is not a very warm person. And They were hoping that son to be the trustee, but now he's that far. He doesn't even know on a regular basis what's going on with the Medicaid benefits in Michigan. Is the daughter, the younger sister, is more capable? I have to know all of these things in the beginning and on an ongoing basis. I may not be able to accomplish all of those things on a standard template planning document.
1: And so... How do you manage this from a business end that just you're emphasizing the the sheer time consuming nature of all of this work, particularly for special needs situations that have a lot of complexity associated with them, where you know you're you said your your average planning fee still may only come in in the two thousand dollar range. like how do you just handle this from a business perspective all the all the time intensive planning work for uh, a somewhat limited dollar amount
2: so We are not necessarily taking 40, 50 clients a year. We are very aware of our capacity issues. We are very profit-oriented. You know, our expenses are only 30 to 32%, not counting our draws for expenses to manage this. We have, over the years, become very efficient. It takes me maybe a couple of hours to do a plan. If an advisor associate is doing it, it may take me a little bit longer to over, oversee the plan and the staff is very capable of running the morning star report we just analyze it and put in our remarks and so on but we have just become more and more efficient over the years to put it all together
1: well and there is an interesting effect to me that that emerges for firms with this level of of depth and expertise around a specialization which just even as unique as every client situation is, like when you when you're seeing your you know, fiftieth uh, client with Asperger's or your thirtieth client with Turner syndrome, at 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 some point you are familiar enough with the issues and dynamics that are at play that there isn't much for you to research, there isn't much for you to look up. It's mostly just taking the client information in and applying all the all the knowledge in your head to start crafting observations and recommendations. And so what, what may otherwise be. An incredibly time-consuming process for the average advisor because, in essence, we have to teach ourselves the solution and then figure out how to communicate it and convey it to the client. You you effectively a shortcut of that process because this is repeatable expertise. Like once you learn how to deal with this particular special needs situation, once you're very familiar with the tools and solutions and the issues to handle it, all the other times the clients come in in the future, and so it 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 gets significantly more efficient because all the expertise becomes so repeatable.
2: Correct. Perhaps this is a good segue for me to tell you that it wasn't that easy when I started, right? It may not be easy for anybody, but it's so different. So I started in the business here within four months from coming from India. I came here with qualification. I had six years of banking experience and I had an MBA in finance, but I was very young and financial planning was an evolving industry in 1980, 40 years ago, and not too many women were in the business. My experience was to do business planning for the business owners who were the bank clients. But I recognized here that that aspect of planning, the banks were not necessarily doing it. And I I found out that for me to be a financial planner I had to start with either being an insurance agent or a stockbroker. None of them were areas that I was very excited about, but reluctantly I started in the insurance industry and I recognized that I had that I had the knack for being able to educate a client in order for me to make a sale. But, you know, like I said I was an immigrant and the only thing that was in my favor was my determination that I had to get from one spot to the other, and I did not know a single person in this entire new world except my husband. I needed clients, so it was cold calling and walking on the street and industrial park and things like that. But one thing led to the other and the business, I survived in the business and I did well. And my clients were young entrepreneurs or professionals, mom and pop, young families and so on. But as I learned, about planning. And as I got my securities licenses, my CFPs and the business practice was working, I continued to feel very strongly that something was missing. I really needed to add another component that gave me a different level of satisfaction. I wanted to be um, separate from the rest of the crowd. I just did not know what it was going to be. And I kept on exploring, should I be specializing in divorces? Should I be specializing in more business planning? But the average successful business owner in Detroit area at that time was a male in mid-50s and Anglo-Saxon. They were not ready to open up their doors for a young female from India at that time. I felt that I had to go to a different path. And sometimes you have to believe in providence. So in 1989, almost 10 years later, January, February, March, three months in a row, three different families came to me for regular financial planning. And during fact-finding, I discovered that each one of them had an adult child with special needs. One retired school principal had a son with schizophrenia, second had an adult child with cerebral palsy and mental retardation. And the third one had also cognitive impairment. None of these families had any clue what was going to happen to their child when they were no longer there. That's the time I had my aha moment. And the fact that my older sister, who lives in England, she's a physician and her firstborn has autism. But it's not that I saw her every day, but I knew what changes my sister had gone through in her life. And I put two and two together and I said, I need to specialize in this, except there were no books written, no articles, and this was before internet. So I did not know how to start. There were three attorneys in my area who were doing legal documents, but they were not planners. So I found a person in Massachusetts, Phyllis Kramer, who at that time had been working in this area for a few years, she and I connected and we agreed to work and start special needs planning in Michigan. For the first two years, she taught me a lot. We shared revenue. And from there on, I took it to the level where we are today. I have, my, through my firm and myself, we have counseled over 1,800 families nationwide and we do regular workshops and on this topic. And I have spoken nationally on this matter. But initially, just knowing about the different disabilities, it was going to the library, sitting down with pediatricians, psychiatrists, learning to know the medications and all of that. It took me a long time. And the meetings are always emotional. You have to be able to demonstrate the empathy, the sympathy, and yet you have to know the special needs etiquette. You're never sorry for those families, but you have to demonstrate that, yes, you have a challenge and it has to be addressed. So today, with a lot of information available, one can go on Google and figure out what the autism spectrum is. But none of the schools at that time had the AI program, Autism Impairment. Today, almost all the schools have. When my niece was diagnosed, it was one in maybe 100,000 people that was that had autism now after 45 years it's one in 56 or 1 in 60 that has autism so people are more aware and advisors are learning more but even if you have the knowledge you have to have a lot of other skills of being objective and still have a little bit of the psychology ability social worker ability you're also a parent, maybe. So ability to hold hand and counsel, all of these things have to be put together. And still at the back of your mind, you're a business owner and you're objective enough to be a planner.
1: So how did this evolve for you going down the the road and moving to this direction of, of specialization? So I understand like you you talked to Phyllis early on you you know she she gave you i guess some some suggestions about how to go down this road like what what did the model look like as you were getting started and and what were you doing for clients at that point
2: well the process was pretty much the same but finding the clients was the most difficult challenge so what phyllis taught me was a lot which is networking and finding organization where you're going to go and have a gathering of parents and teach them. You have to create a presentation to educate them in layperson's terms as to what planning is entailed and how planning is done and what the legal documents are. Why is it very important for your child to remain qualified for government benefits? Because no matter how wealthy you are, you still have to have your child qualify for the government programs because you cannot buy into that. You have to qualify for that. So I learned from Phyllis what the structure of these programs are and who do you network with. I learned about the various special needs advocacy organization. I learned about the special needs education structure in various school districts. So the first two years, she even came down here every other month and we did the workshops together. The first two workshops we did was one of the organization called, in that particular county, the ARC. Now, the ARC really stands for Association of Retarded Citizens, but in the special needs vocabulary, we don't use the word retardation anymore, but it's kind of stuck. I remember that that evening, we had 70 people who attended our workshop. The very next day, we spoke for the Association for Mental Illness, again, attended by 60 people, all older people who were over 55, 65 people, they had never heard anything about long-term planning. And majority of them had done no planning whatsoever. So again, majority of them came for consultation. And I was at that time, not knowing where this is going to lead, I couldn't do 100% special needs planning. It I also had to remain a business owner, pay the rent, pay the staff and still take a salary home. So I continued to also do my general practice but worked very very hard. I was working many hours those days to just establish but found out where I could get the list of various organizations, entities, understanding the school districts and what is the definition of of disabilities and what was the American Disability Act and what's IDEA, meaning the Education Act uh, uh, in the different schools and so on, what's an IEP school report. It was a learning process. I would say it took me good four to five years to really feel confident that I can handle it all by myself. And it wasn't going to be just, okay, I'm going to get back with you. Let me read up a little bit more on that. So over the years, now I can pretty much, from the back, on the back of my hand, I can tell what the various disabilities entail. But every once in a while, I'll have something that I've never heard of, and then I may still have to look up, but there's so much available now on the internet.
1: And so, so in the building years, it sounds like it was... This is going to take a long time to build the expertise, so I'm going to continue with my generalist practice while I'm also building deeper and deeper into this into this specialization and working with special needs families because it just it, it took a long time to get ramped up between the planning strategies and, and I guess figuring out how you were going to market into the community.
2: Right. So initially, any school district we approach that we want to do this presentation? we just got a yes right away. And so I remember from 1990 to up until maybe three, four years ago, we were doing 14, 15 workshops a year. We would have six or seven before June, before the schools closed. And then September to November, we would pack in another six to seven. And we would have, sometimes it'll be attended by five people, sometimes, By 30 people, you know, we had a system to call them and to follow up. And after three or four calls, if they didn't come, they would just go back in our filing system and say, okay, we'll touch base with them in another year to see. And if nothing happened, we just closed that chapter. Now, you know, we are reaching to a level where I don't feel that I want to do more than five or seven a year, but they are organizations that we do repeatedly, and they're attended by 30 to 50 people. And they're very successful and our closing ratios are very high. It's a very successful special needs practice and very well-recognized, not just in our area. I uh, published a book, um, I authored a book in October 2018. You wrote a blurb on my cover on that, yes. It's not just a story about, it's not a book about just how to do planning. It's got a chapter on that, but so it's a composition of several families' true stories, and each family is different, and these are stories about families, their uh, their challenges in raising a child with special need, and their trials and tribulations, and each family with a different special needs child, different diagnosis and different economic uh, statuses. It also includes families or, or professionals who have dedicated their lives as a physician or as a special ed teacher or stories about families who have lovingly adopted special needs people. So that was my gift back to the community because I personally feel I'm very blessed to have entered into this specialty but I've also accomplished a lot in terms of what I have received from them and what my career path has taken me over the years in this as recognition, emotional satisfaction. It has given me a lot of intellectual stimulation and also quite a bit of financial rewards.
1: I'm I'm struck by just the sort of the unique nature of what comes in marketing around this this kind of niche and specialization that you know when you talk about like going into school districts and offering to do educational workshops around school districts i think for most advisors like that is not necessarily a typical place that we would go to prospect or, or would be hard to get the foot in the door it would be hard to to convert people into business but the nature of having this particular focus like yeah i get it you know the families with special needs children are often still in the public school system. They're very anxious about what they do and how they navigate the system to ensure their their children are well taken care of. And so it has a, a very natural kind of pain point and challenge point for them that gives you an educational opportunity to work with the school district, get in front of them, just do genuine educating and helping them. Because we know at the end of the day, many of them are going to need more and additional help as well. And that's going to turn into business opportunities.
2: Right. So the school districts were my beginning, and other than some of the advocacy organization who provide services to this population, but every single child with an established diagnosis of disability, age 18 is a very uh, important age because that's when they start the government benefits. You want to catch them before that, educate them as to what you need to be aware of In order for your child to qualify for SSI Medicaid, what are you going to do about the health insurance? Because Medicaid is not going to pick up everything. You want to continue your child on your employer-provided health insurance, not just because they are a student, but because they have an established disability. And then Michigan is very blessed to have special education until age 26. The federal government doesn't mandate special education beyond 21 or 22, So of all the other states in the union, the kids have to be out of the school at that age. And then where are they going to go and what are they going to do? So majority of the schools have what we call a transitional living arrangements under which, for example, in the state of Michigan, Michigan Rehab, join hands with the school system to talk about training for these now adult children over the age of 18 as to what their job skills could be, what can they be trained for, how should they um, plan in case the parents had started. In in those days, they would start a UGMA account, but oh my gosh, now it has $40,000. But if they want SSI Medicaid, they can only have $2,000 or under their name. So the school district becomes extremely important. Now, also, the school district parents are young. They're going to be in their 40s, maybe early 50s. We cannot expect much in terms of long-term planning about retirement planning. They are going to do their initial planning. They are going to buy a life insurance. They are going to have the legal documents, but we are going to watch them. We are going to continue to have the relationship. We are going to connect with them again before the child is leaving school because now they're 26. Did your child get a job? You no, know, my child is too severely disabled, will not have uh, a job. So where? what are you going to do? Your child is going to be home. Both parents are working. Who's going to watch the child? How much is it going to cost you? You know, there's a lot of different phases. Are the grandparents involved? We have to look at the grandparents' legal documents because majority of them will say, we leave our assets to our children. But if they pass away before us, their share will go per service. First piece means also their special needs child you have inadvertently just disqualify your child with special needs we have to see the parents legal documents the grandparents i mean and so they may say hey wait a minute all this is involved what can we do well sometimes we have bought the life insurance on the grandparents sometimes the grandparents will say well we will give the money to buy the life insurance oh by the way i don't have a financial advisor since we are all family, can you also look at our documents and our planning? We have gotten so many indirect clients as a result of the special needs sources.
1: And and I guess again, that's part of keeping the balance between the specialized practice and and the generalist and just the effect. Like if if they're good the if if Minotti's this good with the complex situation for, you know, the the special needs child, like. She's gonna be great at mine. i don't know i don't have I don't even have that much complexity. like it'll be wonderful i i can I can imagine clients crossing over very comfortably on that dimension,
2: right. and you know, Michael, over the years, I have just learned my talk differently with different people. I don't have to make things this complex for a person who have simple situation but but, as we know as 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 time is going by, we are recognizing people are living longer and longer their life planning. So, you know, special needs planning has given me the experience and the expertise of being a very good life planner, having the skills of making complex to making it simple. And I would say if at all one has to develop their skills in this kind of business, it's not how fast you can grow the portfolio or what the rates of return is going to be, but how you're going to take care of their challenging situation, address them, identify address them, and it's almost like identify the problem, make, making it real, and try to solve them. And they recognize that, that we are problem solvers. It's not always about assets under management. They automatically flow in when you recognize them as people and identify their problems.
1: Help me understand a little bit more around just the business development and kind of the 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 volume you you mentioned at one point you've collectively worked with eighteen hundred clients over the years, and I know you've been doing this for a number of years, but that's still a really big number for just the the number of clients to go through and 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 work with so help me understand a little bit more where the opportunities are coming from me. Is this just all like 14 or 15 workshops a year and you've gotten really good at them? And you know, because you're in school districts, kind of by definition, like children graduate and move on, new children come in and, and go through the system. So there's always a steady flow of new people coming in and just regular workshops in the school districts for several decades has produced all of these client opportunities. Or are there other ways that you're you're getting chances to work with people in the niche?
2: So let me correct myself. I have counseled 1800 families. I haven't done planning for everybody and I've kept them as clients. So a very large percentage of people will come for counseling. So I recognize the challenges on a very simple situation. I can spend 35 minutes and tell them what to do. These are people who do not have practically anything and they come, but they still have to do some basic planning. On a yellow pad, I can draw the picture of what their legal document has to look like. And they have no finances to deal with, but they still have a child with special needs. And I will tell them what to do. And I also have relationship with various attorneys who will give them a deep discount and do a plan for them that is absolutely necessary. A lot of those are included in the 1800 people. A lot of people also have a simple situation where it may take me an hour. And although I have the ability to issue them insurance, I may choose not to because it's time-consuming for my back office. But I will connect them with somebody who can do their insurance. Same thing if they have just $150,000 assets to manage. I have spent time with them, just, just tell them what to do, but handed them over to other advisors. But so those are included in the 1800. As I said, in my office, in my books, I have 250 clients that that have become clients that we have chosen to keep them as clients. Over the years, we have lost some clients. Parents have died. The trust is funded, but maybe the son and daughter, other children live out of state. We have chosen not to work with them. So we are very careful what we take on. We don't want a whole lot of funded trust with $250,000, which when I am exiting my office may not be able to manage. So those clients who are part of our office today, of our practice today, are all clients who have a fair amount of assets or who will have a fair amount of assets eventually.
1: So I guess just part of the dynamic of working in this, in this area is, look, there are sadly uh, uh, families with special needs children up and down the income and wealth spectrum, if they're more affluent and want and can pay for ongoing services and support from you, you may work with them as clients. If there are people that either don't merit that kind of relationship because they're not that complex or just don't have the financial wherewithal for it, your your framework is I will try to at least counsel you. We can have a brief conversation, I will give you everything I've got to get you on your way. But like that's what I'm gonna do, and then I'm gonna fur you out and and, th- and then that's the end of the relationship because I just can't afford to do this from a business perspective to serve that client on an ongoing basis.
2: I have defined what type of clients fit in my practice. I have to get emotional satisfaction from service every client. I have to get intellectual stimulation, but also they have to be financially rewarding. I will stay committed to the special needs population irrespective of their financial status. I will hold hand. I will direct you to a nonprofit entity that can do work for you. I will give you that much time, but I may not be in a position to take you on because there's nothing to take on at the moment. If you ever came back because you fit in my requirements because you got an inheritance or because things change, I'm not going to take you just because you have assets. Even for that, I have a requirement but our connection is going to be because you have a child with special needs and other advisors may not be able to pay that much attention to small details and we can.
1: And I guess, again, part of the part of what facilitates the ability to do that up and down the spectrum is being so deeply into the specialization for clients that end up not having a very significant amount of complexity, you really can get a lot of very constructive advice out in a relatively short conversation, because this is your specialization, this is what you do, and it doesn't take much research so you can get them some actionable recommendations and move on from the conversation relatively quickly.
2: Yes, yes.
1: but the the three criteria you said were or emotional satisfaction for working with them, intellectual stimulation for working with them, and that it has to be financially rewarding for the firm as well.
2: At the end of the day, I'm still in the business. And I'm not a nonprofit, although I give a lot of time away. I speak in places with no charges or fees for that. So those are my contribution to the community. But when it comes to people's planning, who need the planning, are willing to pay for my expertise, I'm the businesswoman here.
1: Interesting. And so is that how you think about this, just kind of the the balance, the tension between this is a community in need regardless of wealth, but I need to run a business that has just certain financial requirements around compensation and ability to compensate staff in turn that you kind of balance out, like these are the clients I'm going to work with for profit to do the business. And then these are the things that I will separately do for free or on a nonprofit basis to balance out.
2: Yes, because when I run the business, I want to make sure That we are paying the rent and we are funding our defined benefit plans, and the staff is getting compensated correctly. We are everybody's benefits are intact. And at the end of the day, I'm maintaining the value of my company so that I can retire ultimately in a healthy way. All of those things I have to wear the business person's hat, but I still want to give. And so I have a family foundation. Every year, I give a fair amount to special needs organizations. I speak in many organizations and do pro bono work that is in addition to what I do for special needs families.
1: And so do you actually set goals or structure or time for yourself? Like, I'm, I'm going to do this many clients on a pro bono basis, or I'm going to do this many engagements for, for free, or uh, I mean, just because uh, I'm assuming the requests for your time never end like a lot of people in need. So how, how do you draw these lines of how much you're going to do for free versus how much time you're going to spend on call the, the core business itself?
2: So, Michael, I really don't need to identify it that way. So, for example, if I have done five workshops from February, March, April, May, and there are 22 people who have signed up for consultation, maybe five will become client. And those are the clients who meet our criteria, but all 17 others who have signed up, maybe five will not even show up, but the remaining people will get our time. So if at all somebody has come and I have quoted them a fee of $1,500 and I recognize that their planning was a lot simpler I may just charge them $1,000, but then I also see a family who have very little means, but my just turning them over to an attorney on a, or or just drawing the chart on a yellow page and say, go do it, may not be enough because they still have some complex situation. I may still do a plan and not charge them anything. So I never know how many situations will be there given what I call my Seminar seasons. There may be five pro bono. There may be none. There may be five profitable clients. It's just every time it's different.
1: And so, what does this look like in interactions with special needs attorneys and other people in the system as well? I'm, I'm imagining at some point there's just kind of a legal challenge of when when are you when do you pass being a financial advisor and into you know, what lawyers do in unauthorized practice of law, if you go way too far, how do you draw the line between where does your work end and where does a lawyer's work begin? And for an advisor who's looking at this, like how do you know where to draw the line so you don't go too far into what the lawyers do? It's
2: a very good question. So every planning document has a disclaimer page that although because of our specialization, we had to bend backwards To learn to read the documents and separate, set apart from the wrong documents or poorly drafted documents to the right documents, we are not going to create your documents. But we will make recommendations. In the estate planning section, we have a chart of what we see the trust documents is going to be like. And over the years, we have developed relationships with attorneys who specialize in this. There are there are different kinds of attorneys, and I can talk a lot about that, our good experience and our not-so-good experience. First of all, we only want to work with attorneys who respect what we do and our knowledge and our expertise. Because sometimes an attorneys may say, well, what do you know? You're a financial planner. So we want them to respect for what we have earned in terms of our experience, and and the respect that we demand. But honestly, every advisor in my firm, we have really worked very hard to be able to read a legal document and be able to identify where things are not right. And then from that, after identifying and now having worked with all of them who specialize in that area, we identify which attorney is going to be good for which law firm. For some of the families, it's very important for us to identify attorneys who also know how the community mental health system works here. If they have to fight for the child's right, why did you discontinue the Medicaid benefit of this person? I want the law firm who have maybe social workers or or people who have social security experiences in their staff. Where I have difficulty is working with law firms where we are experts in special needs planning. You can do a decent document, but when a family is in a challenging situation after they receive government benefits, they really don't know much. So there are different I, attorneys identified for different things. I have an attorney who charges very nominal, like $1,000 for a parent's joint trust and a separate standalone special needs trust and um, revocable trust, the other powers of attorney and poor over will. We give them a copy of the plan so the attorney really doesn't have to do any additional fact-finding or have to think about what this planning entails. Some of the other attorneys who have to do a little bit more may charge a little bit more, but most of these attorneys will meet with us in our office. And the initial planning fee that we are charging them includes our meeting with the attorney in our office because I have often found that when the clients go to the attorney's office on their own, The clients don't know what to ask or what to say necessarily, and the attorneys occasionally are not being financial planners, and they don't have to. That's not their qualification. They will not know necessarily that, okay, I did this legal document for this family where the special needs trust had the ability to stretch an IRA. So there was the stretch IRA provision with accumulation language. Now, what are we going to do about the SECURE Act implementing in this planning? It's a game changer because we had given very little to the special needs child. We had given most of the retirement assets to the other children. But now we may have to give a little bit of the life insurance that was dedicated to the special needs trust so that the other kids have a little bit money to pay the taxes. So financial planning dictates which attorney we work with and what kind of legal documents that has to be. So the financial planning and the coordination of the legal documents, the financial planner really has to know the tax implication, general investment planning, retirement planning, and special needs planning in order to do a correct plan.
1: And so help me understand, kind of going back to the earlier discussion, what leads you to be Anchored in doing this in a in a broker dealer in a hybrid situation is is part of the model. Also, the implementation of insurance end because I'm assuming a lot of special needs trusts end out with insurance. Or is like, do you view that as part of the business model, or or is the broker dealer just from legacy business of things that you did in the past? Like, how does that fit in? What works for someone that wants to specialize in this space and still be able to build a business out of it?
2: So it's a combination. There is some legacy business, but we still believe that annuities have a place. If a family doesn't have pension plans, they need some guarantees. But sometimes we generate new business in annuity matters. So for example, recently we had, we are in the process of doing planning for this family. We made the presentation this family has investments worth about $4 million. About $1.4 million is in annuities that he bought himself. And he had bought that just for tax deferral. And so now he's saying, how do I take this distribution? Because I have almost $800,000 worth of gain in there. So he's struggling to see what he can do with us in terms of relationship or is it just going to be a one-time planning fee and directing him him to the attorney to do the legal documents? And he's questioning me, tell me what questions I should ask. And I gave him a long list. How do you want to divide your assets? His one son-in-law has made millions in the technology business. What asset do you want to give her? Your other daughter... Is doing well, but nothing like the older sister. And then you have a son who is bipolar, who is living at home with you. The simple thing that most people say, I want to treat my children equally. Well, equal is not always equitable. Do you want to also divide the annuities to the special needs trust with one third of the gain to be taxed by an irrevocable special needs trust when the parents die when everything about $13,000 gain is subject to the maximum taxation do you want to give that to your daughter who already has a tax problem do you want to what do you want to do with the annuity do you want to cash them in that doesn't make sense well there is one annuity company who can 1035 exchange all of that And you can start taking a distribution, but by making your special needs son as an annuitant and the beneficiary of the special needs trust, it can be like a pension plan in the trust. Some of the income will be taxable. Some of the income will be return of principal. So you have to know what products are available. And even though we are not going to get upfront commission on that annuity, it still is a broker dealer product. Okay, so we have to keep our doors open to see what will fit in. And the second thing is, I really don't want to be dealing with compliance issues. I'd rather pay something to somebody who takes care of our compliance issues and also approval of some of the managers that we use on Investnet and so on. I don't want to be bothered with that additional work.
1: So... I do have to ask from the from the flip side though, like how does broker dealer compliance work when you are doing this level of analysis and counseling and advice in a in a special needs area? You know, I know a lot of broker dealer departments get, you know, the only thing that makes them more nervous about advisors trading close to tax advice is advisors trading close to legal advice. You are really in-depth straddling all of those in a hyper specialized area. So is 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 compliance around doing this level of in-depth planning work in in such a specialized area a a challenge from broker-dealer compliance perspective?
2: Well, they are. They have to be. And we have to be very compliance-focused. We will not do anything that will be against the law or compliance challenge. So everything in the documents really says that this is to be verified by an attorney we are advising you based upon our knowledge, based upon our experience, but the taxes have to be done by a CPA. Also, the legal documents will have to be created by an attorney. We can only make suggestions and and recommendations for you. We are very, very, very aware of this. And in our planning document, we have one full page of disclaimer on this. Any Workshop that we do, any planning presentation we do, we have disclaimers on all of that.
1: Okay, just just recognizing, at like the end of the day, we we are not lawyers. Like that's okay. We add value here. Here's the great stuff we do, but making it crystal clear to people, like we're not a lawyers. This is not legal counsel.
2: Yeah, and and the interesting part of it is that the attorneys have the JD designation. But so many times they know so little about the financial matters and and the intricacy of that, that they can create a document that may not necessarily work with the financial assets that these families have. So it's a team approach. It's a team approach of a good attorney and wherever it's applicable, a good tax person, and sometimes if we have to choose a non-family trustee, we have to make sure that what their experience and knowledge is and what their commitment is going to be, what the cost is going to be. So we really work like in a quarterback is the word that I like to use. And oftentimes we'll tell a client that in the absence of a person like us, you are the quarterback. But you do that best as either a physician or you do the best as a Ford Motor Company engineer. You're trying to fill in the role and juggle the role as a parent. And then you think that you're going to be able to focus on taxes and legal matters and remain an expert on government benefits and keep up with the changes. Well, that's when they start to buckle down and say, you know what? It really is beyond my capacity to do everything. I better have somebody
1: like you. And then, what's the broker dealer that you work with that's willing to work with you on this?
2: (laughs) We work with Securities America. But before that, we were with Capital Analysts. But wherever we have worked, they have appreciated what our specialty is. And um, we haven't had any issue in terms of because we provide all of the documentation that's necessary to stay compliant on these matters.
1: So, help me understand from a broad perspective as you've gone. Deeper and deeper into the specialization, and you know, I know for a lot of advisors, the there's a f- trend that occurs where the the deeper they go into a specialization, uh, kind of the deeper they go, the deeper they go. Often getting to a point where they decide, I'm just, I'm just going to be all in and solely on this niche or specialization. I'm not going to take the other folks anymore because it's kind of a distraction from this thing that I'm primarily focused on. Y- you seem to have a very conscious deliberate focus to keep the business roughly 50 50 between special needs families and your and your generalist clients so can you talk to us a little bit more about just the the decision to keep the split how how you balance that or just how you think through keeping one foot on each side
2: you know for all of us a work a person who works and has a family, we try to keep work life balance. when When you retired, you try to keep a balance between what you do in terms of activities and your volunteer work and so on. Life is always about balance, and more so in working with families who come with a huge emotional baggage. When you sit down with those clients in order to demonstrate or feel the empathy, and the sympathy, you really get very emotionally involved. At times, you're also dealing with difficult parents. They seem to love their child, but they have accepted the disability, but many of them have a lot of sadness. Some people have anger. And this is a time we let them open that window and and say it all and show it to us what they feel. And so if I have to do that five days a week, three appointments a day, that would be quite emotionally exhausting. In addition to that, there is a distinction between families who have developmentally disabled child versus mentally ill children. A developmental disability will have children with Down syndrome, autism, autism, uh, Turner syndrome, Asperger, or autism, and various disabilities. Those people, unless and until there is dual diagnosis, because occasionally a person with autism can also behave like a person with mental illness, that versus a person with schizophrenia, bipolar, or schizoaffective disorder are two different ballgames. Mental illness will never be cured. They can be stable with medication and therapy. But some of these people are chemical engineers. They are University of Michigan graduates, but they cannot work. They're still living at home. The parents just start sobbing because this child was not born this way. This child was very bright in school. What happened? Well, when you really dig do, dig deep, there were symptoms all along. But these are also special needs, mentally ill people whose siblings do not want to be the trustee. They will love their brother and sister, but they really don't want to deal with them when it comes to caregiving from a distance or, or money matters and so on. Whereas if I have an older sister of a Down syndrome child, will say, my brother is going to live with me for the rest of his life. I'm okay with that. So... You know, I can't see more than one person with a mentally ill family, only one family a day, not more than one. So having that variation, having that diversification in the clientele keeps us sane in running this business also.
1: What do advisors that are looking at going in this direction with their practices not actually understand about? what it takes to work with the special needs community? Like, what are the biggest myths or misconceptions that you find?
2: The advisors that I do know work in this specialty, they are few and far between, but many of them have been motivated because they have a child with special need or a sibling or somebody in the family that have motivated them to be this way. Whenever I have gone on financial planning conventions or meeting with other advisors, they will have but how do you uh, make a profit? Meaning their assumption is that special needs population are poor people. And I see that you can, one of my wealthiest clients that I did planning for was a business owner with two schizophrenic daughters and a son in the business. It was very complex planning, very, very wealthy family. And in my book, there's an example of a family family an engineering firm, but the the son had a diving accident and became paraplegic chest below and he was in an engineering school. And so, yes, there are a lot of families who may not have assets, but we all have to recognize that special needs, there is no discrimination on families by assets, basically. So one has to recognize that there is tremendous opportunity in serving a population that really needs good advisors. And you can, if you keep a balance, and if you take a handful of clients who can fit in your model and do a handful of clients planning on a pro bono basis, you will feel very grateful to have served this population and still remain profitable. So I feel that I have my level of success you know, managing the assets we do, the revenue that we have, the valuation that we have created, and the national recognition that we have got. All of that is because of my specialization. I feel that I'm a better planner because of the opportunity that I got in working with this population.
1: What surprised you the most about the path of building your own advisory business?
2: I would say the surprise that I have gotten is how grateful this population is to what we have done for them than the general population and we have worked equally hard for the other population. The thankfulness that we get and and uh, the gratefulness that they feel is tremendous and how they talk about us is, is tremendous. But I also am surprised by how big this population has become almost 10% of every school district is special education, including the learning disabled. How long they are living is surprising because of medical advancement and how much it's costing to take care of a child with special needs who lives this long and how much it's become a huge responsibility for the government on their budget. Medicaid is just expanded for the need of this budget, and yet the budget constantly goes down as how much the need is. All of those are surprising to me on an ongoing basis. And yet, we are one of the wealthiest nation in the world. And yet, we don't have enough that is happening to this population.
1: Well, I think you make a powerful point about just the sheer opportunity that maybe some still underestimate, just to point out like 10% of every school district is special education. A lot of those are are specifically special needs families. Like that's a uh, multiplied across all the people in your neighborhood, area, school district. Like that that's a lot of people for which I'm gonna bet for most advisors in their school districts, there's probably literally no one from the advisor community that's in that school district, working in that community, working with the local attorneys. And maybe even if there's one or two, the sheer size of the need is far larger than what one or two advisors can serve in a particular community.
2: Yes. And I I also want to caution the advisors who want to explore this possibility. The special needs population is very sensitive. They can see you through in a very short time, whether you are there, just to get them as client and sell them a life insurance and take their assets. No, you have to know about disability. Do your homework and become a compassionate person and be there to hold their hands and guide them through and be a true planner, not just for assets under management. It'll automatically follow if you do the right thing for the right people.
1: And so for advisors that want to, as you said, do do your homework, where do you go for this education and information today, aside from just Googling everything that comes up as you start talking to people?
2: Well, if you have an advisor nearby who knows this business, try and see if that person is giving enough to give you advice without feeling threatened by the competition. Read books that are written on this topic. Attend meetings, just general community meetings by the advocacy organization. There's the Autism Society. There's the Down syndrome group. There is the ARCs of every county. And then find a special ed teacher and understand what an IEP is. If you know a special ed teacher, understand what's involved in the school. Learn to talk the talk and expect no results initially. Building every niche takes a lot of education, whether you want to work with just podiatrists or whether you just want to work with a group of UAW machine and tool guy, whatever your specialty is, you have to know what's involved in their benefits or or who they are as human beings, what's involved in that, and then just make an attempt to work with that. But read, even read my book to understand what goes in the families. And my book is Beyond a Parent's Love, and it's available on Amazon, but it gives you insight to a family what they go through. A lot of people who are older, people who had their child diagnosed in the 50s and 16s, they were embarrassed and ashamed of their child being disabled. They hid them in their house and didn't talk about that versus today. You know, children are diagnosed when they are one and a half, two years old, and they have early intervention programs. So there's a big difference between your my parents' generation or my generation versus my children's generation. There's a lot more acceptance. But this population, the younger population, is also very, very cautious who they want to work with. But they all have a need, and you can fulfill that need as an advisor.
1: So are there any other books that you'd recommend as well, you know, we'll, we'll have a link out to yours. So for folks that are listening, this is episode 172. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 172, we'll have a, a link out to to Minotti's book. But any any other books in this area that you'd recommend for just helping advisors understand the, the community and getting up to speed?
2: So I think uh, in my book on page 271, I have written down suggested reading on special needs planning. There is Warney John, and Cynthia Haddad. They have a book out, The Special Needs Planning Guide, How to Prepare for Every Stage of Your Child's Life uh, by Paul H. Brooks, publisher. There is also Wright Hall, The Complete Guide to Creating a Special Needs Life Plan by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. So those are a couple of books that I would recommend. And then there's an organization called Academy of Special Needs Planner. Then one can become a member and attend their annual conference. Only 7 to 8% um, members of the 150 members are advisors. Majority of them are special needs uh, lawyers. And then American College has now a designation called CHSNC, Chartered Special Needs Consultant, that will give you a lot of academic knowledge, but the people skills will come one client at a time. Learning the de- details of the various disabilities will make you an expert one client at a time. So patience is important as well.
1: Awesome, and we'll we'll have links out to all of that in the show notes when people are interested. The American College designation, the Academy of Special Needs Planners. So, Monoti, as, as you've been going down this journey of just b- building the business itself in all these areas, what was the low point for you?
2: The low point sometimes is a stubborn client who just doesn't admit that the child has a problem, especially with mental illness. They just cannot accept the fact That their child has a disability and they have to do the planning. And you wreck your brain. Why can't you get it? Your child has been societal. You've just been to the hospital. But the real reason is the parent also knows that this child is very smart, has gone to university. The non acceptance of the child's disability, I just can't get it through them. The other concern that I have here is that my partners. Are committed to doing special needs planning. They have the designation. They work hard on that. They know the law. They know the planning. One always worries, I started this from scratch. I have the compassion. I have the patience and so on. Our business is getting very challenging. The fee is always an issue. And there are a number of advisors who are competing for the business and so on. My hope is, and their commitment is to continue to do well with this population, but I do—I hope that they're not challenged to such an extent that it reduce the load of the work that they have. And once I have retired, I'll be gone, but it is my hope and wish that my firm continues to serve this population for the longest time that they possibly can.
1: So as you look back on, the, on this journey of building the firm, like, and Anything you know now about how you built into this specialization that you, you wish you knew 20 and 30 years ago as you were getting going?
2: Yes and no. To a certain extent, I feel that I know more about the various disabilities and people's skills is because I didn't know anything. I forced myself to learn the hard way and the information stayed with me. When you try to do a quick study, it can also evaporate very quickly. But also, I feel that maybe I was a good planner from the beginning and this specialization taught me how to be be a better planner and taught me the legal part of it that I would not have bothered to know otherwise. So as a result of this, this gave me the skills to be a well-rounded advisor, and also a better life planner. So I feel that if I was was starting now, I don't know how much patience would I've had because everything is just right available. Oh, I can get to it and I can just read it. Because I learned it the hard way, I spent hours going over legal documents. I spent a lot of time reading in the library about what autism was in the beginning, or uh, what is a galactosemia disability is. I had to have patience, which I feel somebody who wants to learn it quickly may not devote that much time to it.
1: So it, as we wrap up, this is a podcast around success, and and one of the themes always is just that the the word success means different things to different people, and so you've you built what certainly anyone would objectively call a a very successful advisory firm with with hundreds of millions of dollars under management in in this specialized area. But how do you define success for yourself at this point?
2: Success in our business is often defined as how much AUM we have, how much revenue you have, the size of the practice, and what number of staff that you have and so on. I would say financially, this firm is very successful when you look at around what the average size of the firm is. Could it be more successful? Maybe, maybe not. But I will walk away someday when I retire, look back and feel a tremendous satisfaction of having a great balance in my practice, but also having served a population that nobody even knew once upon a time how to service them or recognize who they are. And today I can say with great pride that I have serviced a population and will continue to do so that most people know very little about it. And I've had the compassion to continue to serve them and having written the book and given it to the community to know more about the disability and the population and knowing about my practice.
1: I think it's incredible. And, and again, we'll have a, a link out to the book in the in the show notes for anyone that wants to to read it, it's it's very powerful because it's not it's not simply a book about for special needs clients in and of itself. To me, it's it's that intersection of special needs clients and the ways that we actually get to impact them as advisors, or at least in especially when you want to go in and, and focus your business in this way. So we'll include it again in the show notes, com one seven two for anybody that wants to go click through to get a copy, but. Thank you again so much, Minoti, for joining us and and sharing the story and the journey.
2: Well, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about this specialization, speak about my practice, and hope that somebody, even if one person who is listening to that and makes a decision that I need to look into this population, I would say that you and I both would have benefited from this opportunity.
1: Amen. Although I, I, I hope and, and suspect it's going to be more than one that, that will feel inspired hearing this story.
2: And please feel free to anybody who wishes to contact me and talk to me about and guide them what, can, what they can do. I'll be happy to. That'll be my way of giving.
1: Wonderful. Well, we'll, we'll include links out to, to your website as well, Minoti, so people can get in touch with you. But thank you so much for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, and you're very welcome.
0: Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor?